You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. This is Cruzen from the Sons of Mandalore, and you're listening to I Rebel, a Star Wars Destiny podcast. Forgery of Imperial documents, possession of stolen property, aggravated assault. State your name for the record. Jin Asa. We have a mission for you. I want to help. Good. The world is coming undone. Imperial flags reign across the galaxy. I fear nothing. All is as the Force wills it. Every day they grow stronger. There isn't much time. I rebel. Welcome everyone to I Rebel. I'm your host, Jedi Geek Girl. We are in the middle of store championship season, and while most of us are focused on competing in these local events, Gen Con sort of snuck up on us. In this episode, we are going to talk Gen Con prep and dive into some of the hero decks that have been doing well at store championship so far. Before we do, however, we would like to take this time out to give a special shout out to one of our patrons. This episode's shout out goes to Jordan. Jordan is another local patron who I know fairly well who has always had a good attitude when playing Destiny and always strives to be as good as he can with that same positive attitude. Thank you Jordan and thank you to the rest of our patrons for your support. It is because of you that this podcast is made possible. To find out more information about our Patreon program, including how to get our one-of-a-kind classic series tokens, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Destiny. Hello Rebels, Lassie here. iRebel is also brought to you by Artificery.com, your place to go for Star Wars Destiny products. Check out our website, and if you decide to purchase any Star Wars Destiny product, please use the word Jedi Geek Girl, one word, at checkout to help sponsor iRebel. Pick up some Star Wars Destiny product and help support the show all at the same time. Win-win, right? Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Back to you, Jedi Geek Girl. Joining me for this episode is another newer Star Wars Destiny content creator, one that I am excited to get to know Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome one half of the Son of Mandalore, Cruzen. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I've been a fan of your show for a while now, so it's really cool to, uh, to actually be a guest and just be creating content for Destiny is something I've kind of wanted to do for a while now. So finally actually getting the chance to jump into it and start down that path. It's been a lot of fun and it's also been an unexpectedly large amount of work, but I also having a good time with it. So it's, you know, it's hard to complain. The feeling is mutual. I am really excited to get to know you because we talked a little bit on Discord, but we haven't really sat down and got to know each other. We spoke a little bit on Discord earlier in the year, too, and I remember running into you at Worlds, but there were so many people going around and things happening, and I'm, like, focusing on the tournament that we didn't get an actual chance to sit down and talk. So, like, it's nice to actually get a chance to sit down and have a conversation. Before we go any further into Star Wars Destiny, can you please share with us a little bit about yourself outside of Star Wars and Star Wars Destiny? Probably the most interesting thing, or unique thing anyway, is, is that my job, I work in the fantasy sports industry. So I work at a site called Rotor Grinders, where we do content and strategy tools and such for daily fantasy sports. So my job is to help come up with tools and things like that that help people break down statistics for matchups for a day's worth of games or a week's worth in football's case and help people like build lineups that like will score the most points or beat their opponents. And so I kind of already had a bit of an experience in both gaming and content creation because that's kind of my background is I started at this company by writing articles and things of that nature. So that kind of like helps give me an idea of some experience to get started there. And there's a lot of similarities in between things like fantasy sports and I have a background in poker, which has a lot of similarities to card games like Destiny. It's all about calculating your odds and making the best of your situation, etc. So that's probably the most interesting thing about me, I guess, that's outside of Destiny. And I'm a lucky person that I get to do something for work that I love doing 
in addition to now having this side thing where I get to do even more of what I love about something else that I love. You know, it's a, it's a win-win. First off, I have to say that is freaking amazing. I said it a lot on the podcast. I'm not into sports. I could really care less. But the fact that you do that, like I mentioned, I'm a pro wrestling fan. So while it's not the same thing as actual sports, I can get into your head and imagine what it would be like to do the same thing for like pro wrestling. So if I can feel that way about pro wrestling, I could imagine how people who do what you do, do what they do for sports. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very, very passionate industry for sure. Like a lot of the fans that are fans of what we do are, it's similar to Destiny in a lot of ways. It's just like a camaraderie there. The people that enjoy it, you know, love just communicating with one another about it, talking strategy, and there's an extra element in fantasy sports in that when a game is happening, you can also, you know, watch the game with your friends and kind of share that experience too. It's a really cool industry. It's something I have a lot of fun doing. The opportunity just kind of fell in my lap. I consider myself very lucky to be able to do what I do. But yeah, it's it's great. I love it. I would like to dive into it a little bit further because even though I am not a sports fan, ladies and gentlemen, I say that a lot. I know that most of our listeners are probably sports fans. So what kind of sports do you cover? We cover pretty much anything you can think of, honestly. So we obviously we cover the main ones. So NFL is the biggest. Then there's NBA, MLB, and hockey. And then the next biggest one, in fact, this has overtaken hockey, I think, in popularity, is PGA, golf. That's become really popular over the last couple of years. But we also do NASCAR, MMA, soccer. There's even some smaller niche sites that do things like lacrosse and tennis. And actually, just in the last year or so, DraftKings, which is one of the big providers of the actual games that people actually go and play the games, started doing esports. So we have Fantasy League of Legends now. So we cover a little bit of that as well. Pretty much if it's a sport that's played and it has some sort of statistics track, we cover it. Now, I know it is not a quote-unquote legit sport, but Vegas covers it. So I have to ask, do you do anything associated with quote-unquote pro wrestling? We don't, know. So I've heard of fantasy wrestling leagues in general pro wrestling leagues, but I've never seen, because we focus in the daily fantasy realm, that's a sport that's a little bit harder to kind of assign fantasy point totals that make sense for just one day's worth of fights. Whereas traditional fantasy, for example, in baseball, you have accumulation of stats over a whole season, but you can also just do the number of hits that a guy got in one day, and it translates pretty easily. Whereas something like wrestling, at least from my knowledge, it's hard to kind of make that transition over to only counting what they did in that one fight. So I haven't seen it in the Daily Fantasy realm. That's not to say it won't at one point, because people are always innovating and adding new things. But unfortunately, at the moment, we don't cover that. Sorry. (laughs) Before we move on to Star Wars Daphne, I would like to offer you the opportunity to give your company a plug. Would you be okay with giving them a plug for those who like what they are hearing and perhaps would like to find out more? Sure, yeah. If you're interested in, in like daily fantasy at all and want to kind of see what we have to offer, you can visit the site. It's just rotogrinders.com. Or if you want, you can just email me directly. My email is just brian with an I, B-R-I-A-N, at rotogrinders.com. And then I have a Twitter at, at Cruising to Victory. I'm on there a lot. So if you have questions, even if you just want advice for your team or you want to figure out you know, what we offer, that kind of stuff, just uh, yeah, shoot me a message and I'll be happy to help you out. It is now time to dive into Destiny proper. I am so excited for our first topic, which is going to focus on the Sons of Manalore. Like I previously mentioned, you are a newer content creator. However, you came through the ranks working with Sugi through his program. So even though you are newer, I would assume that you've been in the process of it for a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to dive into content creation and what did that whole process look like? I've been interested in content creation in general for a while. It was just kind of, well, the first step was a matter of finding time and plan to execute it. What really helped push it over the edge was meeting Sugi. I met Sugi for the first time at the Birmingham, Alabama Regional last summer. He came up just to cover the event, and we ended up talking for a while after the event, and he recorded our finals match. Justin and I actually ended up playing each other in the finals at that regional. I won't tell you who won because it wasn't me. But, um, <laughs> uh, we ended up talking to them for a while, and you know, I just kind of got to and actually double blanche guys were there also, and a couple others. It was so it was just really cool to kind of meet all of these content creators whose stuff I'd followed in the past, 
And I had a background in writing articles through Rotogrinders, so it was just something I had kept meaning to do. And so after Worlds, when Justin and I ran into Sugi and the whole Knights of Ren crew again, we hung out with them for most of the weekend. That kind of just like revitalized my inspiration to finally buckle down and do it. So I just went up to Justin. I said, hey, man, you want to start a podcast? He said, yeah, let's do it. I spoke with Sugi about it just to get some advice because I had never done anything like it before. He was super helpful, everything from which software I should use to where I should host it, and he helped share it and all that. And of course, he actually hosted our first episode, the HoloNet program, which was awesome. He's just been really helpful through the whole process. Whenever I have an issue with something I'm trying to figure out, he's there to help me. And so we kind of just like decided to just give it a go. We just did our first episode, I think it was 35 minutes or so, but Justin and I are good friends in addition to creating content together, so... I find that our shows just kind of flow. What I've learned based on talking to other content creators is that we're a little unique in that we do very minimal editing in terms of like cutting and pasting sections and that kind of stuff. It doesn't seem like everyone does that, but that's a that's a strategy I've heard a lot of with you know they'll do one at a time. But we just we kind of just just like sit down and talk for an hour. So that's pretty much what inspired me to get started. And then now that I'm into it, the wheels are turning. I have like a list of articles I want to write video series I want to do, certain podcast topics I want to go over. There's just, it never ends, right? So it's just a matter of keeping up with it. Exactly. And Sugi is basically the godfather of Star Wars Destiny content creation. Basically, he is tied to everybody. He is even tied to me. And before we go any further, I would like to publicly share a story for the first time. When I was trying to work with Ivy Bell, it was a struggle, you know, trying to figure out how you're going to do everything. And it can be a bit overwhelming, especially when you don't have any experience with the technical side of it and trying to figure out how are you going to do this. Well, when I was trying to figure out about deciding to pursue content creation or perhaps just be a website page, I was listening to one of the episodes where they were talking about things that the Star Wars Destiny community needed. And one of the things that Suki brought up was the fact that he would like to have a all-female podcast revolving around Star Wars Destiny. And right then and there, that lit the fire underneath me. And I'm like, oh, no, you don't. I am going to be the first produced, led, and created Star Wars Destiny content. And ever since then, I've been rolling with Ivy Bell. So again, it goes right back to Sugi, and he's been helping me if I need any help, just like he has helped you and many others. He's just so great for the community. Like, I've always thought from when I first started following content creators, the stuff he does, like, it's very clear that he's just focused on fostering that community and making everyone feel welcome and just enjoy the game. And, like, there is room for all kinds of content creators with competitive focus or otherwise. And I feel like he's just such a good ambassador for the game of Destiny overall. Like you said, he just helps everyone get involved, and the game needs someone like that. And just the fact that he helped you get started, and I love all of the stuff that you do for the community with your store championship data reporting and your eBay tracking and all these cool things that you do for the community. Like the fact that we have all these awesome people providing all this awesome content, it's just great. It is absolutely amazing. It's basically a community inside of a community, but not outside of the community, if you know what I'm saying. Exactly. Yep. So let's dive into the name of the podcast because I think the name speaks for itself, but I want to talk about where the name came from. So obviously the Mandalorians are very popular in Star Wars fandom, but why did you decide to focus on that compared to perhaps something a little bit more well-known like Sith or Jedi, etc.? When I was trying to come up with a name in general, I wanted obviously something as simple as possible. I wanted something Star Wars related, but I didn't want it to be necessarily locked into like have destiny in the name for example and so i kind of ran a couple ideas by my local playgroup we were down to a couple different ones honestly it boiled down to at least me and my friend uh, one of my friends chase especially is just obsessed with scum and boba fett and mandalorians and also helps that at the time i was working through the clone wars animated show and I was at the part where, uh, you know, you got introduced to Death Watch and all of them. And I, I just, I thought that was a really cool group. And, and just the fact that it was Justin and I made a lot of sense. And so it just kind of all came together and just like, it was a cool sounding thing with a, a simple enough idea that I could make a logo out of it. You know, Mandalorian helmet is pretty easily recognizable just because of Boba Fett. 
you know, a lot of casual fans might not know what a Mandalorian is, but once they see that logo, they're sure to recognize it. So yeah, it was just kind of a mixture of like, hey, this is a cool name. I like Mandalorians. So let's roll with it. It is definitely a unique image and name in the Star Wars Destiny content creation community. Keep doing what you guys are doing. You guys are producing great content. Before we move on to our next topic, I would like to ask you one question because before we started recording, we were talking about how doing content creation is basically like another job. Are there any lessons that you have learned doing content creation that perhaps you did not know going into it? Yeah, for sure. So I had quite a few hiccups on my first, or actually it was my second episode. So when I started recording, I was using a program called Audacity, which is supposed to record the individual person's voices on different tracks. I was having trouble making it work. So what I ended up doing was just have Justin install it on his end as well. And then he sends me the file after every episode and I splice the two together. Turns out that creates a lot of issues because I had our third episode, I think it was. I had done about an hour and a half worth of editing. I had done like a thing to cancel out so some background noise in Justin's microphone that I canceled out. About halfway through, whatever I had done had ended up distorting his voice for like the rest of the episode. You could barely understand what he was saying. So I went back to start over and I hadn't saved my file separately. Long story short, I had an hour episode that it took me six hours to edit. So the first lesson I learned is to always save everything in separate files so that you can backtrack if you have to. So you don't have to do the entire thing twice, right? But I vastly underestimated how much work it takes to just take a simple recording and even it out so that it doesn't sound awful when somebody's like listening to their car on the way to work or things like that. There's a lot of tips and tricks, things like compressing the voice so that the highs and lows aren't as bad so that when somebody's listening, their ears don't bleed. If you're like, I found that I have a really loud laugh. So if like I'm genuinely laughing at something and I don't edit it down, it like explodes on the speaker. So you kind of have to be able to adjust for the individual also. There's a lot of minutia that I didn't realize went into it. It is also really fun too, because it's like you are a puzzle master and you're putting together a puzzle trying to figure out, okay, how do I make this sound well? How do I cut this out? Okay, this sounds bad right here. How can I make it sound good? Do I cut something and connect it or do I cut the topic altogether? It's really fun and it's always rewarding because no two podcasts are the same. Yeah, absolutely. And then that one that I was referring to, because I didn't save that initial file, I had to do that with every single segment where I had to sync up the timing for the entire conversation. So not only was I figuring out which segments to put in the right order, I had to do that as well. So it was certainly a challenge, but there's no better feeling than like spending all this time editing a podcast. And then a couple hours later, a notification pops up on my phone that my podcast is on this feed for people to download and listen to. It's just a really cool feeling. Have you lost an episode yet? Because that's part of doing a podcast. Oh God, no, I haven't. Please, no. Yeah, it happened to me once. I lost an episode with John. And it kind of suffers too, because you record a podcast and it's so genuine and you're getting reaction and you're basically in the moment and it's fresh. And then you lose it and you have to go back and record it and you lose the magic. Yeah, because you're having the same conversation over again. Yeah, that sounds terrible. And I had a scare where I didn't get the audio file of a guest that I had on. So I had to wait for him to get home and send me the audio file. And that is where my first bonus episode came in because I wasn't sure A, if he had it, and B, I wanted to get an episode out. So that's why I did a bonus episode. So it's always fun because you think, oh, you know, I don't have to worry about it. And then you lose an episode. So I don't want to say it's going to happen, but it happens to everybody. It's a rite of passage. Exactly. So (laughs) we could talk about podcasting forever. I know it's such a fun topic. I want to sit down and talk with a bunch of people about it because there's so much there. But moving into our second topic, we need to talk about Gen Con because I don't know about you, but Gen Con snuck up on me. Yeah, it's kind of been in the back of my mind for a while. Like I knew I was playing in the TTS League and I was kind of trying to use that to test out a couple things. The way that the cut ended up working, like you had to lock in your deck before the physical set dropped. So I didn't really get a chance to play around with a bunch of stuff. But I've kind of been casually, not casually, but on and off practicing for a couple weeks now. I've started to kind of pick up intensity over the past week or week and a half to two weeks just to try and nail down what I want. I am completely indecisive when it comes to picking a deck. I probably drive everyone in my local play group crazy because every time I go to a major event, 
I spend like a week lamenting in our Discord. Like, I don't know what I want to play. Somebody help me. Like when I went to Worlds, I changed my deck a week before Worlds and heavily regretted it. So I'm just trying to narrow down choices, pick a deck, and then just kind of play as many games as I can until then, you know? So to clarify to our listeners, you are going to Gen Con. I am, yes. Yeah, I leave Wednesday morning. It's my first ever Gen Con, so I'm pretty excited. I know that all the people who are going to Gen Con are preparing. Like you are, you just got done mentioning. What does your preparation route look for? Do you have a gauntlet that you go to or are you trying to crack something with your team? Like what does your preparation look like? So generally for the first phase was just play a whole bunch of different decks and see what I like, what I don't like. But after that phase, I had just been trying to narrow down some not specific deck lists, but a couple concepts. So there was a while where I had like four or five decks I was cycling through. And my general strategy is anytime I go to play Destiny, whether it's at the local play night or on TTS, every time I go to play, I will just use one of those decks and rotate them and try different matchups. Once I get an idea for the couple that I'm honing in on, I like to sit down with Justin at least once or twice. He's my main play partner and we'll just kind of each pick like, okay, here's a deck that I want to really focus on. Let me play it against all of these matchups that I'm expecting to see and see how it fares up and then switch. Like he'll play his deck and then I'll play with the decks that we expect to see. And then I play on TTS with a bunch of people as well, where I'll just like kind of just jam as many games as I can. The hardest thing is trying to figure out what the meta is going to be in such a new set. And I feel like that's going to be a big deciding factor. Like, yes, you have to be familiar with the deck and bring a good deck but you also want to try and predict the meta as much as you can and counter it. So there's some guesswork involved there. I would like to explore that for a little bit because it seems like it wasn't that long ago that we got a new set and the meta hasn't really had a chance to develop. Like one of the things I do with the store championship report is keep track of the store championships and see how the meta evolves. And in order to do that, you have to track results of multiple weekends because just because Catch Noak does good weekend one doesn't mean he's going to be on top of the meta. So seeing the meta evolve by compiling all the results, you get an idea of like what's on top and what's doing well. But we only had like, what is it? Like three weekends post-balance the force. Like it is so crazy that we don't really know what the meta is going to look like. We have an idea, but it isn't well defined. Do you like that? Or do you think it is a bit of a hindrance for such a high level event? So I think that there are pros and cons to both. I think that a smaller sample size, like the one we have right now, rewards players who are just A, strong overall players, and B, good deck builders. This is the type of event where it feels like somebody could very easily find a powerful combination that people just haven't been considering and take everyone by surprise. Because the meta hasn't settled out yet, there's no rock, paper, scissors set up, whereas a big event after for a set that's been out for a while... I feel like that tends to kind of benefit the more data-driven players, if that makes sense. My job, I tend to be a very data-driven person. I used to play Hearthstone quite a bit, and I would make Excel spreadsheets with like win rates against different decks and kind of try and find the one that had the best overall win rate. You can't do something like that in a game like Destiny just because there isn't the you know large enough sample size of game results to do that. But in a situation like this, I feel like it's more people will tend to gravitate towards decks that A, have done well. It's been only been a couple of weeks, but a lot of people just say, hey, this deck's done well, I'm going to bring it, and B, are simple to play. So like, I'm expecting Cad Snoke and Kylo Price to be relatively popular, maybe not the most popular deck, but those are both straightforward decks that are strong, have proven to be strong because they've won some events, they're easy to play, and people love aggro. So it's interesting to me. I love the game theory of going into a tournament, trying to predict the meta and counter it, So I don't tend to have a strong preference, whether it's a new meta or an old one, but it just has to adapt your strategy, I think, based on which situation you're in. We are recording this podcast before Gen Con. However, let's have a little fun here and let's do a little prediction. You were talking a little bit about what the meta will probably look like with the heavy aggro deck that is quite a given, given the fact that that's usually how a meta develops but do you have any other prediction because it seems like hero vehicles is really popular there are so many different variants of it and it's a lot of health and i don't know about you but sitting across from your opponent 
when they have like 20 dice cards on the field, approximately counting their characters, is really, and their supports that don't have dice, it's really, I don't want to say annoying, but it's like, oh my goodness, how many activations and actions are you doing? Yeah, it's very overwhelming. I think the Hero Vehicles is going to do very well at this event for that reason, because aggro is going to be popular and Hero Vehicles just outlasts them. You don't have to necessarily worry about as much removal because you just use your characters to tank damage while you just get to this kind of breaking point that most aggro decks have a really hard time getting to. And so like those are kind of the two archetypes I'm expecting to be the most popular. So I believe that the top tables, you will definitely see a couple aggro decks just because the volume of aggro decks that I expect to be there. But I think that at the end of the day, they are going to lose out to those hero vehicles. I think one of the decks I think will probably do well if it avoids all the Kylos is actually the Luke Ray deck because I feel like it's a middle-middle deck where you take as many actions, not as much as vehicles, but you do more than in an aggro deck. And when you're playing against vehicles, they are doing so many actions that they are almost kind of like fighting the clock, kind of like a middle deck. So if you're running a middle-middle deck, you have enough action to keep up. And if you're smart with your action and shield, you should be able to win that on time. At least that's how I did it in my game. So that is a possibility. But we all know that if the game goes any longer, you know, that middle-middle deck, it's going to struggle. Yeah, and the other nice thing about a deck like that is that because it's a middle-middle, if one of the characters goes down, you're still in a decent spot. A deck like Kylo Price, if you take out Kylo, a lot of times Price has a difficult time sealing the deal. If Raya or Luke go down, you still have a pretty strong character left that can finish up the game for you. So, yeah, I think that's a good call. Before we move on to our final topic, I would like to ask you one hard question. Money on the board. What deck do you think will win Gen Con? What deck do I think will win Gen Con? I think if I had to pick one, it would probably be a vehicle deck but I think it would be version that has long-term plan in it. So I think it's going to be a vehicle deck with long-term plan. I think that's a card that hasn't been explored terribly deeply yet, but in a vehicle deck where you don't need to care about your speed as much, I think it's very strong. I think if I had to put money on the board, I think I would go with Kylo, just because the mathematical odds of how much Kylo there will probably be, plus the strength of Snoke. So I could probably see Snoke Kylo taking it. That's fair. Yeah, there's certainly expected to be a lot of Kylo. And that's an interesting point too there. Because there's going to be so many Kylos, it feels like Kylo Snoke would be at a slight disadvantage. But at the same time, Snoke is strong enough to make up for that disadvantage. So I can definitely see that happening. And partly because I want to see him get hit, but that's neither here nor there. So... Moving on to our final topic, we are going to do the same thing that we did last week. What we are going to do is I'm going to pass it to you, and you are going to pick a deck list from a select list, and we're going to talk about that deck, and we are going to focus on the hero decks this time. Without further ado, let's dive right in. What deck would you like to talk about first? The first deck that I want to talk about is actually one, or at least a variation of one, that was in my finalist's choices to bring to Gen Con. I don't think I'm going to end up pulling the trigger, and I know you're going to be happy to hear that I'm not bringing it based on your opinions that I've heard in the past, and that is Yoda Cassian Mill. This version is a deck that went 4-0 and finished top 4. It looks like it lost in the top cut at a store championship to a Rex clone trooper. I'm sorry, no, that was its round one. It lost to Snow Cat in the top cut. So this deck has more upgrades than you're used to seeing in a mill deck. It's running things like Fast Hands. It has Force Illusion, Force Meditation, Force Speed, and then Lone Operative and Second Chance. And then the supports, it has the Infamous and Maz's Vault. And also starts with Profitable Connections, so it just makes tons of money. Some of the interesting cards, it has like its event suite. It has like Beguile, Clandestine Operation, Easy Pickings, Flames of the Past, which I think is a... Very undervalued card in Mill. Hasty Exit, Hyperspace Jump, Pacify, and Rebel. So this build is a little bit more upgrade-focused than my version. I have a lot more events in it to kind of stay alive for as long as possible. But I've been playing this deck for weeks now, and it mills like crazy fast. So a typical game, you're going through their deck in the third or fourth round, and then at that point, it's just about surviving. It has things like hyperspace jump to get out of a bad spot against a vehicle deck that's taking forever. The main reason I'm not bringing it is because I'm afraid of going to time in a big deck like Gen Con. 
I feel like there's a lot of situations where people just play slow in general. In general, the Destiny community is great in terms of competitive events, but there's always the chance that somebody realizes they're losing and slow plays the rest of the game and I don't have a chance, right? So that's kind of why I'm afraid to bring it to a big event like that because there's just something that could be out of my control. But it's a really strong deck. Like, Mill has made a lot of leaps and bounds in this set. And as somebody who enjoys playing Mill, I'm pretty happy about it. I admitted, no one in the past, that I am not a big fan of Mill. And it can be scary sitting across Yoda Cadian because of how quick it is. However, I am going to cheat a little bit here because last weekend at the Short Championship, I actually sat across from Yoda Cadian. And of course, I sat down and I'm like, oh no, Mill, I do not want to do that. So I'm all again revolving around Mill. So I do back Force Illusion because I'm like, I don't need that against Mill. And we get started, and the first card he played was a gun. I'm like, okay, so it's Yoda, Cassian, Agril. And he proceeded to not only win the game, but I think he won the tournament. So, yes, Yoda, Cassian, Mill is very strong. But what I really love about the character pairing is that you can go both ways. You can go Agril or Mill. And it can be really quick and very overwhelming for your opponent. That is interesting. And that's like, it has the added advantage. What if he uses a battlefield? Do you remember? I don't remember. It could have been other room outpost. I, I don't remember. I, I was so like, oh, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, because it's just, it's you see that and you just expect mill. I mean, that's an extra benefit of that deck is that it throws people off guard when they see that it's not a mill deck. Of course, the only problem there is at a big event like Gen Con, you would lose that advantage at the top tables. But it certainly would do a long way to getting you there. I love hearing innovative stuff like that. I think part of Gen Con is getting to the top table. So obviously when you play it round one, your surprise is pretty much gone. But you could probably keep it until like, what, two-thirds of the way into the tournament. So it could be a good call. But back to the deck that we are focusing on right now, the mill aspect of it. I really like Flames of the Past. I think it is really strong. It is a blue neutral card that costs two, so it's balanced. Discard a card from play if there is a copy of that card in any discard pile, including your own. I really like it. Yeah, it's gotten me out of a lot of tight spots. Like, I just put one in last week when I was testing the deck, just because my thought process is I'm going through their deck relatively quickly. There's probably a lot of good targets. And a lot of times with mill, you run into some situations where like ancient lightsaber is a problem. And if you've milled one, you can just get rid of the other one. You can get rid of a chance cube. I've used it often in vehicle matchups to get rid of a big vehicle because the other copy of that vehicle is in the discard pile. And that's just devastating for your opponent. So I think it's probably kind of a niche card in that it functions best in mill. But I don't think many people are using it right now. And I think it could catch a lot of people off guard. And it's, it's two resources. But in a deck like this where you're just flush with money, it's a strong card for sure. Do you have any other pieces of advice you would like to touch upon on this deck for somebody who wants to know how to play it before we move on to our next deck? Sure, yeah. So the first thing is when you're mulliganing, you want things like force meditation in your opening hand is ideal. This version runs Maz's Vault to get a resource. My version runs a Bespin Wingard, but a resource generation card, if you have one, is something you definitely want to start because the whole goal of the deck is to burn through their cards while staying alive. So you need resources for removal and control and things like that. So the main pointers I would give would be to sometimes you will get a Cassian rollout, for example, and obviously you want to hit his discard sides, but you're not always going to get those so sometimes it just makes sense to, even if you just have to resolve a two-range side to get a card off the top of their deck, sometimes it's worth it because claiming faster can be helpful depending on the matchup. Mill in general is a very, you have to be fluid when you're playing against all different types of decks because different types of decks require different strategies. And sometimes you have to play what seems to be suboptimally, not getting maximum value just to survive another round or get the last couple cards of their deck even though it's not in the fastest way possible. One of the pieces of advice that I have for Cassian is you don't have to be greedy with him. If you don't get something that you want, you can still resolve your die and get the ability. So don't feel like you have to discard to reroll to get something because no matter what you resolve with Cassian, you are milling. And I played against many Cassian players who have gotten greedy. You don't need to do that when you are already putting so much pressure on your opponent. Getting a resource and milling a card is still really good. It's really good. I mean, Yoda has two sides that does that per die. So moving on to our next deck, 
What deck would you like to talk about next? Okay, so this one I want to talk about just because it's kind of a troll deck, but at the same time, people have been seriously talking about whether or not it could be strong in the meta, and that is this Hot Cakes Hero OTK deck. So it took third place at a 14-player store championship, which, I mean, that doesn't sound like, oh, well, it only took third place in a 14-player championship, but also you have to keep in mind, because it's an OTK deck, it's difficult to play, and it probably could use a lot of refinement. But I should probably talk about what the deck is first. So it's four characters. It has Elite Jar Jar, regular Ezra, the most recent Ezra from Way of the Force, and then two Gungan Warriors, and it runs the Espionage plot. And the upgrade, there's only one upgrade, and it's Hidden Agenda, which has some nice synergy because not only does it reduce your events, but you can put it on Ezra so that you can use his power action. And then it has a Launch Bay, which I believe the name of this deck should be Launch Bay, but B-A-E, but that's an aside. And then the rest of the deck are events. There's 28 events in the deck. There's two Ancient Wisdom, two Awards Ceremony, one Cheat, two Don't Get Cocky, two Fond Memories, Friends in Low Places, two Long Con, Pacify, two Premonitions, two Rebel, two Renewed Purpose, a Salvo, Strategic Planning, two Tinker, a Truce, two Trust Your Instincts, and two Well Connected. And the whole point of the deck, if you're not familiar with it, is to essentially draw your entire deck turn one. You have tons of card draw for both you and your opponent. And the goal is you play a launch bay, which, if you're not familiar with launch bay, has a text on it that says that the value of its die is the number of cards in your hand. So you get a launch bay out, you get it to show the range side, you have, say, 13 cards in your hand, and then you use Salvo to deal 13 damage to all of your opponent's characters and kill them in one action. A lot of people have been playing with this deck. I've seen it on some Twitch streams, on TTS, ever since this like kind of hit after hitting the store championship. And it seems kind of gimmicky, but it's more consistent than you'd expect. The problem is, because it's so gimmicky, like it has some matches where I feel like it just automatically loses. Like If you run into a mill, for example, and you don't have enough ways to get back all of your combo pieces, if you lose one of them, you kind of just lose the game. I remember seeing this deck at Worlds. I didn't really see it in action, but I heard about it. And what you are trying to do with the deck, I think it is absolutely crazy. The thing about this deck is there are so many different ways to build it, but it usually has a Gungan Gungan, Ezra, and a yellow character. I've seen Anakin with profitable connections. Brian from the Destiny Council, he ran it at a store championship. And it's just crazy that a deck exists where you can basically draw your whole deck and one turn kill somebody. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's really cool that somebody came up with this idea. It's really innovative. But there's also people who would argue that it's a really bad play experience. And if you don't know what's coming, and all of a sudden your entire list is gone in one action, it's kind of gut-wrenching. So it's, it's a cool deck. I don't know if people are going to love it if it becomes really competitive. Maybe I'm underestimating it, but I feel like just the nature of a deck like this is so susceptible to one thing goes wrong, your whole plan goes out the window. So I feel like if this were to make it, it would need to have some sort of alternate win condition. It reminds me a lot of the hyperspace deck. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. From the Awakening format. Yeah, it has a similar effect where it kind of just ends the game, right? Yeah, it basically revolves around having a combo that is broken, but you can disrupt it if you know basically what's coming. I was lucky that I never played against the hyperspace deck, so... Yeah, me neither. I didn't start playing until Spirit of Rebellion hit, so I missed that whole era, thankfully. But you're right, in that it's similar in that if you know what you're doing, it's much easier to combat. So like the number one piece of advice I would give if you're playing against this deck is never, ever claim the battlefield. A lot of people, you'll see like, oh, I'm out of cards in my hand. There's nothing I can do. I guess I'll just claim and let them do whatever they want. And that's when they start playing things like Don't Get Cocky, which lets both players draw two cards. And now you're sitting with a piece of removal that you could have gotten rid of his launch bay die with, and you're helpless. So never claim against this deck because you need to be able to react if he gets the combo out and you have a way to combat it. The thing about this deck is it's very much like Bro TK and Seven Sister One Turn Kill. It is a one turn kill deck that is a combo deck that if you know what you are doing, you can disrupt it. I think you will see it at Gen Con. I don't think it will win. I think you might have one in the top 16, maybe. But it is something that I think people should know going into Gen Con. While this episode will drop after Gen Con, I think it is important that we do touch upon it because I think you will see it locally. So 
my advice, and then I will give it to you for your advice, is basically just have hand control. Like probe would probably wreck this deck because there are so many events that if you play a probe, you're probably going to hit two events and two combo pieces. Close Quarters Assault is another one, friends in low places, being smart with your removal, hold back your removal. So basically, yeah, make sure you have a good amount of hand control in your deck. And if you're Thrawn, you know, you just activate Thrawn. <laughs> yeah, that's why Thrawn is one of my favorite characters. He can adapt to like any situation. Oh my god, I love Thrawn. But this is not a villain podcast, so moving on to our next deck. What deck would you like to talk about last? Okay, so... The last one that I wanted to go over is the one that, although, again, the build is a little bit different than mine, but I believe is the deck that I'm going to end up bringing to Gen Con, and that is Poe Cassian with uh, Docking Bay as the battlefield. This deck has 11 upgrades, nine of which are dice cards. There's two DL44s, two Hidden Blasters, two Holdout Blasters, a Maz's Goggles, two Second Chance, and two X8 Night Snipers. And then the supports are Honor Guard, Uprising and Suppressive Fire. There's two of each of those. And then the events are Defensive Position, two Easy Pickings, two Field Medic, two Friends in Low Places, two Quick Draw, two Rebel Assault, and two Truce. I brought a version of this to the first store championship I went to in the Way of the Force meta because, frankly, I only had one box. and I happened to pull one Cassian and then draft another. So I just kind of had the character available, and it was surprisingly strong. I initially wanted to test it with Finn, but I found that Poe was just more consistent. I also forgot to mention, sorry, this this took third place at a 10-person store championship by CW Havoc. Again, not like a rave of a review and that it was a small championship, but not to undermine like third place is still good at any event, right? And since it's so early in the meta, there's probably a lot of things that can be optimized in the list. And this is the first time I've seen Planetary Uprising in this particular combo. It's something I've considered, but never actually tried out. I feel like this deck in general is kind of going under the radar, and I think with a couple tweaks, it matches up really well in the meta, or at least the meta that I expect to see. Against aggro, it has really strong removal, like defensive position and easy pickings. And then, of course, it has the second chances to try and survive that initial onslaught. It has Suppressive Fire, which I think is one of, if not the strongest card in the entire set, which is excellent against things like Cad Snoke. You know, if they roll out Cad, you can get rid of their best die before they get a chance to use it. And it's just good in any matchup on top of that. And the fact that you get to cycle those with Docking Bay is extremely powerful. And then on top of that, the other thing I'm expecting to see a lot of is vehicles. And my version, I run a copy of Hyperspace Jump and two copies of Retreat which really tilts those matchups in my favor, I feel like. I am looking at the deck list, and it is a deck that I like. I like yellow, red, hero, obviously going back to Pomar. But Poe 2 has been a card I haven't been really been able to crack. Like, there is a card that you like, but you just can't seem to get it to work. I would like to try this deck, but I don't know. Poe just doesn't want to cooperate. I do want to play Cassian, but I only have one Cassian. But anyways, back to the deck. I'm looking at the deck list, and I think it is a very balanced deck. Obviously, you are quick, you're aggro, but it's not unfair like Kylo 2. Gotta do my episodic jab at Kylo 2. The first thing I would add, and this is just me, I like the speed that Rex's Blaster adds to a deck, as well as hit and run, because zero activate result. It's just hit and run is so powerful i don't know how you don't include it i'm very surprised it's not in this list i completely agree like if you have rex's blaster on poe and then you play hit and run you can roll in both characters and resolve everything in one action it's very powerful that is definitely the first recommendation i would make if you wanted to pick up this deck and make some tweaks for sure you mentioned, and this will be the last thing we touch upon before we wrap up, but you touched upon about how this is most likely going to be your deck going into Gen Con. What is your mindset playing this deck at such a high-level event with not only so many decks that are uncertain, but decks that are already established? Like, what is your strategy? Yeah, so it kind of takes a lot of boxes for me. I want something that's consistent. I want something that matches up well against what I expect to see, and I want something that is relatively powerful. Cassian, I think, is an extremely strong character. His indirect damage is just really adds up over time, and it opens up all of the very powerful yellow hero stuff that we know and love. 
like easy pickings, hyperspace jump, all of those types of things. Suppressive fire, I already mentioned, is like I think one of the strongest cards in the set. It gives me the ability to play that. I was really trying to figure out a red hero deck to play for just that card. So this kind of ticks that box for me. And anytime I go to a major event, I want a deck that's consistent. And this is kind of right up that alley. The the two focus on Poe along with his special usually ensure that I'm able to fix my dice pretty regularly. The removal cycling through docking bay, assuming I get my battlefield, is consistent. The indirect damage, like no matter what side I resolve on Cassian's die, is just, it's nice. Like I resolve his discards quite frequently. It disrupts a lot of people's game plan, and I still get to do a damage out of it. It's really powerful. So kind of all those things combined with what I already mentioned, the fact that I have some things in there that I think help the vehicles match up, some things that help me survive against aggro. I think it is both consistent and flexible enough that I could do pretty well at a big event like Gen Con. I really hope you do well because I want the deck to see success. I'm a huge fan of Cassie, and like I said, I still need one die. I do wish you the best because Gen Con is going to be, I don't want to say overwhelming, but there's going to be a lot of tough competition there. So good luck. Thank you very much. I'm excited to redeem myself from my sad world's performance. And now you have your brand to represent too. So you got to wear your shrag. That's right. Yeah. That extra pressure. I don't want to be known as the scrub podcast, you know? <laughs> it is now time to head into our conclusion of this episode. Before we let you go, we here at Ivy Bell would like to ask you three quick shotgun questions. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. The first question is, what is one card in Star Wars Destiny that you think is underrated? Maybe this is a little bit biased by my affinity to mill and, and just kind of control decks in general, but one card that I think is really powerful from Way of the Force that I have not seen a lot of people playing with is Beguile. I've used it in both my Yoda Cassian Mill, and then I use it in my Thrawn Snoke vehicle deck. I've seen it here and there, but the flexibility and just sheer power level of this card feels really strong, and I don't think it's being utilized by a lot of people right now. The fact that you can... Well, I guess I should describe what the card is, huh? So it's a two-cost neutral blue event that says reroll one opponent's die, then turn one of their dice to any side, then remove one of their dice. So the nice thing about how flexible it is is that you can use it whether they have one, two, three, ten, twenty dice in the pool. You can use that ability, um, the same die if you want. So for example, if they have two threatening dice out, you can reroll one of them, turn the other one to a blank, and if the one that rerolled is still threatening, you can go back and remove that one. So it requires kind of some math and to use it in the most optimal way, some planning ahead. But when you pull it off, it's extremely powerful. I do want to give that card a try. It's like my 31st and 32nd card. Just it seems like I'm playing a lot of decks these days that are tight on resources. Otherwise, I would give it a try. But I do recommend people give it a try. It just seems like you can disrupt up to three dice for two. It seems really powerful. And I know that you talked about it a lot in your podcast. So... Yeah, I definitely recommend people check it out because there's value for days there. So moving on to our next question. What is one canon Star Wars character that you would like to see come to Star Wars Destiny? My original answer was going to be a young Ahsoka, but I've heard a couple of your other guests say that already. So I'm going to pivot from that and say I would like to see a new variation of Asajj. I know she's already in the game, but her character is pretty underwhelming and borderline unusable. She was actually the first deck I made when I started playing Destiny was Dooku Asajj because it's just kind of what I had available and I think Asajj is a really cool character. So I would love to see another variation of her in Destiny that I could actually build like a semi-competitive deck with just because she's such a cool character. How about a bounty hunter Ventress? Bounty hunter Ventress. Yeah, right. That'd be really cool, actually. Maybe make her neutral because there are periods of time where she teams up. Who does she? She teams up with Ahsoka, right? At one point. She also teams up with Boba Fett and Oa Singh, and yeah. Yeah, right. So, yeah, that'd be really cool. I don't know what she would do per se, but that's a neat idea because that would also help differentiate from the character that's already in the game to give them a reason to reprint her. You could also do her as yellow, and you can also do the Dark Disciple version of her because the Dark Disciple version of her is so good and juicy, and she has yellow lightsabers, but I don't want to talk about it too much. I definitely recommend, if you haven't read Dark Disciple, to please do so. It's a really good story, and it's a part of the Clone Wars, so it's definitely worth the read. I actually haven't read that, so I'm going to have to check that out. Thanks. Moving on to our final question. What Awakening Cycle card 
would you like to see get reprinted that has not yet been reprinted? This is kind of a random card, but it's one that I always thought was kind of cool and thematic, and that is No Mercy. It's only really good in mono blue, but I like the kind of just out of hand surprise damage that it provides. It was in my first ever competitive deck when I started playing Destiny. I played Emo Kids, Anakin, and Kylo One, and it won me a lot of games just because I felt like no one ever saw it coming. So I like the thematic nature of it, where you're discarding your whole hand to just kind of deal that killing blow, and that kind of rewards your opponent knowing to play around it as well. So it's just kind of a powerful but not broken card that I think is kind of a fun thing to have in the game. That is a really, really good card because it is good, it is balanced, it is fair, it is not broken like full speed, and it's not totally useless like strategic planning. To throw that card underneath the bus as an example. So I definitely can see it getting reprinted because it's fair, it's strong, and it's good. So yeah, good choice. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's a fun one. It is now time to wrap things up. Thank you, Kruden, for coming on and talking some Star Wars Destiny with me. I had a lot of fun picking your brain, and I am looking forward to talking to you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. It's really cool to just be on the show. I appreciate you having me on, and I'm looking forward to meeting you at the next event that we both happen to be at. And this time, I will actually remember you. <laughs> well, it's not even remember. It's just having time. There's so much going on at all those events. It's hard to keep track of everything, you know? And so many people, too. Absolutely. So many cool people in the Destiny community. Before we let you go, if people would like to contact you, where can they find you? You can find our main Facebook page over at facebook.com slash sonsofmandalore or on our website at thesonsofmandalore.com. So we post all of our podcasts and articles. And then on our site there, you'll find we're starting to stream on Twitch a lot more. So once we're kind of settled into our routine, you'll see a lot more of our stuff coming from there. And yeah, so those are the main two places. And if you have any questions or you want to talk about something we put out, feel free to hit me up on one of those. I'll be happy to chat anything Destiny with you. That concludes this episode of I Rebel. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you all next time. Jedi Geek Girl, out! This has been I Rebel, a Star Wars Destiny podcast. I have been your host, Jedi Geek Girl. If you would like to contact me, please send me an email at irebeldestiny at gmail.com. And as always, may the force be with you. Bell is an independent podcast, not associated with Lucasfilm, Disney, Fantasy Flight Games, or any other organization. All copyrights for Star Wars, Star Wars Destiny, and all other properties belong to the proper copyright holders.